continue to look at the Psalms of Ascent. That's the sermon series that we have been in uh, for the summer. This uh, section, this subset within the Psalter of these pilgrim songs, which is great. Uh, that We just sang Leaning on the Everlasting Arms about being on this pilgrim way uh, because we see ourselves also as pilgrims. These pilgrims in the uh, Old Testament uh, saints who traveled up, literally ascended up to Jerusalem for the great feasts of the Jewish Holy Year. And uh, we can see how that still applies to us today as we, as pilgrims on this journey to a sacred destination. So uh, Psalm 128 is our psalm for today. It's building off of last week's Psalm 127. So if you weren't here for that sermon, may you go back and catch it and see how uh, the two fit together. But I'm going to read for us now Psalm 128. And let me just remind you, uh, this is God's word to us and it's given to us because he loves us. A song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together after the motorcycle drives off. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning, because yours is the voice that we need to hear, above all others, the voice of love. And so we pray that you would speak to us now, in Jesus' name, amen. So, I have to be honest with you, when I looked up and I saw that I drew Psalm 128 uh, for my sermon text for today, I got a little nervous uh, and I got a little timid. And maybe in other times, in other years past, maybe it wouldn't have bothered me uh, as much, but uh, in other years, the Barbie movie didn't come out this summer. And uh, it's funny uh, because this movie has been a huge box office success and it's been a huge conversation starter and I had no idea really what the Barbie movie was about. And Jesse, my wife, said, we must go see the Barbie movie. And I was like, must go see? Like, really? And she's like, yeah, like, it, I think it's going to be a culturally important movie. And I'm like, the Barbie movie? Because I just, you know, like, had in my head a silly comedy about a Barbie doll comes to life in the real world or something like that, like, you know, Toy, Toy Story-esque or something like that. I, I really had no idea what it was about. But she said, no, we must go. I was like, all right, fine. I like movies. No problem. And uh, so we went and uh, we saw it. And then I saw that I drew Psalm 128 and where it says, if the man fears the Lord and walks in his ways, he will be blessed with a fruitful wife who will bear him lots of lovely children sitting around his table. And I thought, oh, no. How are the women in the church today going to hear Psalm 128. Oh no, here we go, the Bible reinforcing the patriarchy, right? That's what Psalm 128 is about. Is that what it is? And like I said, I've seen the Barbie movie and I appreciated it a great deal. I think it's brilliant. And I think it's brilliant in the way that comedians are our modern day prophets. 
It's brilliant the way that I think comedians of our day are the modern-day prophets. What I mean by that is they boldly shine the light on what is messed up and wrong in our culture, and we receive it from them even if we know that what they're saying implicates us in the things that are messed up and problematic about our culture. We receive it from the comedians. Why? Because they're funny, right? Spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Because they're really funny about it, we can be like, oh, yeah, actually, that's true. And, well, oh, yeah, actually, I'm guilty of that. Or I take part in that. Or either, you know, by just implication. And so I know that patriarchy has been and still is a problem in our North American culture. And the Barbie movie is a success and controversial, same as all those comedians who are the modern-day prophets, because they use humor and they use art and film to get us to see truth and get us to listen and engage the conversation rather than just turn a blind eye to the status quo. And the thing that I appreciated most about the Barbie movie, without giving too much away for those who haven't seen it, don't worry, I, I really hate being spoiled. My mother is the worst. She spoils everything. I hate being spoiled, so I'm not going to give too much away. But what I appreciated most about the Barbie movie is that it's not just simply a movie about down with the patriarchy. That the point that they go on to make that I felt like was very, very helpful is that it's not just about down with the patriarchy, it's also about how patriarchy has been and still is damaging to men as well as damaging to women. And their point being, how do you move forward where both men and women flourish in mutuality rather than otherness? So having said that, I want to offer today that Psalm 128, we are going to talk about the passage and not just the Barbie movie, Having said that, Psalm 128 is neither a justification for feminism's critiques of the Bible, nor is it misogyny's just justification that a woman's place should be barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen, either. To do either of those things would be wrong, and here's why, because Psalm 128 is an illustration just as we would have expected in ancient Near Eastern Hebrew culture, because patriarchy was the default understanding and context for survival. All cultures prioritized marriage and having children because it was very difficult to survive if you did not. And so in that culture where patriarchy and family are the default, the standard signs of happiness were a wife and children who were gathered around a family table. But I want you to also hear that in a culture where patriarchy was the default, don't forget that the Bible is consistently, from start to finish, countercultural, and that it does speak against the abuses of patriarchy. In a culture where women were reduced to currency, property, and baby factories, and children reduced to biologically produced manual labor, Psalm 128 itself paints a very different picture. Fruitful vineyards and growing olive trees. These were the signs in the Mediterranean world of their time of vitality, growth, flourishing, in a word, shalom. 
And if you go and look in other places, the woman who fears the Lord in Proverbs 31 is much, much more than just the one who shows up at the man's tent when he calls for her. What you find in the Old Testament, of course, carries over to Jesus. We just read an example that in and of itself, first glance, kind of sounds like Jesus is being mean to a woman and maybe being patriarchal and misogynist. But if you know the point, it's just another example of Jesus counterculturally giving dignity to women that others did not. And he does this time and time again. He speaks to women in public. He touches them in public which no self-respecting rabbi would ever do. And he's constantly criticized for it. And not just that, he gives women very prominent roles in his ministry and the founding of his church. And of course, Jesus, when it comes to children, what does he say? Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Don't stop them. Don't get in their way because guess what? To these belong the kingdom of God. And in fact, unless you come, become like one of these little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus, time and time again, is subverting any of the abuses of patriarchy and the expectations of his time. And so when it comes to Psalm 128, as Eugene Peterson, the pastor, theologian, writer says, this illustration is just that, an example. An example that we need not reproduce exactly in order to experience blessing. Psalm 128, it is an, illust an illustrative example of what the good life looks like. What that means is that inherent and in what it means to have a blessed life is that your blessing overflows to bless others. That the characteristic of blessing, of what it means to be blessed, is to multiply. This is the universal pattern in the Bible that applies to everyone, male or female, single or married. If you are a single man or single woman, the picture of what it means to live a blessed life in Psalm 128 still applies to you. The Psalm, let me remind you, does start with, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. Everyone. And blessing is to revel in goodness. Blessing is joy. Blessing the good life is not the, in the acquiring of material wealth and honors and esteem and easily paid for comforts that insulate us for suffering. Blessing is not predicated on taking from one to satisfy the other, increasing our standard of living at the expense of another's standard of living and our planet. That is not what it means to be blessed. Instead, blessing is in the flourishing of others. The overflow of my cup filling up the cups in my community for the greater good. If you read through the Old Testament prophets, they speak of a future, of where the world is heading, that at the end of time, everyone will sit under their own olive tree, that a picture of what the next life looks like is this great party, this banquet feast where everyone will drink the finest of wines. Think about Jesus' first miracle. It's at a wedding feast in Cana where he makes a 
stupid volume of wine, of the finest Galilean wine for everyone, everyone at the party to enjoy. Blessing is meant to spread in order to be enjoyed. You go back and look at Genesis 1. God blessed the man and woman and created, created both of them equally in his image to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. God blesses Abraham in Genesis 12 that I bless you. Why? Just so that you can hoard the blessing to yourself? No, I'm blessing you so that you will in turn bless all the nations. Not just your nation, not just your tribe, not just your people. I'm blessing you so that everyone in the world may be blessed. Jesus goes on and delivers a sermon on the mount. He has the Beatitudes, which start with blessed is, blessed is, which means, oh, how happy is the person. But what are all those Beatitudes about? That the happy life is one of radical sacrificial love for the sake of others. Now, having said that, it may seem counterintuitive to our ears that this good life, this blessed life, this happy life begins with fear. Fear. Blessed is, oh, how happy is everyone who fears the Lord. Fear seems, I don't know, counterproductive to experiencing joy. I don't really experience joy when I'm afraid. And yet we are told, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. We've uh, titled this sermon series in the Psalms of Ascent, Songs for the Road Trip. We've talked at times this summer about our own, Jameson and I, about our own personal playlist that our families listen to uh, on car trips. And this summer, while I was on vacation, listening to one of those road trip playlists, the song by John Cougar Mellencamp came on. Small towns. I was born in a small town, probably died in a small town. You know one of the lines in that song? Taught to fear Jesus in a small town. And I remember chuckling. I was like, what a strange phrase. Taught to fear Jesus. And I'm familiar with it. I think it's a very southern expression. I was born and raised in the south. Taught to fear Jesus. And I, and I understand, I think, what he means by that, at least how I understood it growing up. And I'll give you an example. So in one of my many professions before becoming a pastor, in fact, the profession that convinced me to go to seminary and become a pastor, is that I worked for a pest control company. In the panhandle of Florida, uh, long story, Jesse and I, with our newborn first child, Georgia, moved to Pensacola, Florida. I can't find a job. An elder in our church owns his own pest control company, and he offers me a job. The name of the pest control company, uh, Jameson's shaking his head. He's like, please, please, please don't skip this. He thinks I'm going to skip it, but I'm not. I'm self-deprecating enough. Critter Gitter Pest Control. Gitter, G-I-T-T-E-R with little cute antennas on all the R's and Critter Gitter Pest Control. That was what was plastered on the side of our work trucks. And so he offers me this job, and uh, when he sits down with me, he, he says, okay, I'm going to give you this job, but you got to make me a promise. you got to promise me that you will work at least minimum 12 months before you quit. Because that's how long it's going to take for me to recoup the investment in you financially. That's when I will actually start to get return on the investment that I have to put into you to train you to do this job. So you promise me that you will work for 12 months before you quit. And I was like, okay, I guess. And he's like, no, 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 promise me. I'm like, okay, fine, I promise you. I will work 12 months before I quit. 
And he says, I know you will keep that promise because you got the fear of God in you. That's what he said to me, sitting across from his desk. You got the fear of God in you. I was like, okay, sure, I suppose. So first day on the job, my trainer was this really salty guy named Walt. And we, uh, we drive an hour away from Pensacola over across the line into Alabama, and we pull up to my first job, my first site. And my boss put me in termite work. Termite work because it's the most physically demanding pest control job and because there's such great liability in termite work because if you treat a house and say you've protected it from termites and they get termites, then guess who's on the hook for paying to replace their walls? You are because you failed as the pest control company. So physically demanding, a decent amount of liability, so you need to be at least somewhat responsible and moderately intelligent, which I guess I was moderately intelligent, and I was in my 20s at the time, so I was moderately physically fit. He put me in termite work. Well, here's the thing about termite work in the panhandle of Florida and lower Alabama. Almost all the houses are off-grade houses, which mean that they don't sit on a slab on the ground and they don't have basements. They all sit on pilings or pillars or columns, right, about anywhere from yay high, right? And so you have a crawl space underneath the house. So where do you have to go to treat the house for termites in the crawl space, right? So Walt hands me some coveralls to put over my uniform, and he hands me this little trenching tool because he tells me I'm going to crawl underneath this house and around every one of those columns that the house sits on, I'm going to dig a little trench around it and then I'm pour some really disgusting gross chemicals that have been banned since then in that trench to keep the termites from coming out from the ground and going up into the house. You never thought you were going to show up at church today and learn so much about termite treatments. So this is what Walt is telling me. Here you go. This is what you're going to do. Okay. I, you know, I don't necessarily mind getting dirty, but here was the problem. This first house, my first day on the job, this is what I'm going to do. It's a cat lady's house. She owns 16 cats. Do you know what the underneath, underneath the house of a cat lady who owns 16 cats is? One giant kitty litter box. So yeah, if my boss hadn't sat across the desk from me and looked me in the eyes and said, promise me you won't quit, and I know you won't because you have the fear of God in you, I would have gladly handed those coveralls and that trenching tool back to Walt and said, listen, I'm out. I'm not doing this. This ain't for me. Don't worry. I'll find, I'll hitchhike back home. No big deal, but I'm not going underneath there. But instead, I just kind of looked up in the sky and was like, you blankety blank blank. Mm. Because he was right. I feared that if I quit, if I broke my promise to him, then God would drop the hammer of judgment on me. That's what I feared. If I break my promise, I fear God's judgment. And that he will drop the hammer. But friends, the fear of the Lord is not about the fear of God's judgment. The fear of the Lord is not about God dropping the hammer on you when you fail. The fear of the Lord is that awe-inspiring recognition of transcendent greatness and beauty. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's when you are struck with awe at something so beautiful and so grand that it also kind of terrifies you a little bit, 
I'll try to give some examples. If you've ever climbed a mountain or somewhere really high up, and you can stand there and you can look out over the array and be like, wow, this is incredible, but I am standing on a precipice right now that if I just, one little slip, I'm gone. I'm falling hundreds of feet to my death. Or if you've ever encountered a wild animal out in the wilderness, hiking or camping or whatever, right, a bear, a wildcat of some variety, a snake, you know, like you have those moments where you'd be like, wow, look at that. That is amazing. But that thing could rip my face off. Or maybe another way, maybe you've uh, experienced what this means in the presence of human beings that are exercising their God-given talents to to the extent that while you may be enjoying the display and reaping the benefits of the beauty and provision that this person person's talents provide, it also scares you a little bit. We have a phrase for this. Wow, that girl is scary good at blank. That dude is scary good at this. Because we recognize their greatness while at the same time it's like it's unnerving. Like how? How is it possible that they're this good or this beautiful at this thing? Or perhaps the most poignant way that we experience fear of something that is good and beautiful and awe-inspiring is when we are loved. Loved well and unconditionally because there is no greater experience than knowing that you were loved, but also it scares you to death when you are. Because we fear that love because we don't want to let it down. We don't want to disappoint it. We don't want to fail it. We don't want to sin against it. And so sadly, we too often reject that love and move away from it rather than live in the fear, in the fear of failing and disappointing it. Live in this fear that it is so awesome and so huge and so much bigger than me that I can't run the risk of losing it. But the truth is, the beautiful and terrifying, transcendent goodness of God's love is that you never lose it. It's always there. You just choose not to keep yourself in the path of enjoying it. Fear of the Lord is not the hammer telling you that the way of faith is groveling under God's greatness and groping forward on your hands and knees in miserable penitence for your entire life. It is the head held high security that God's primary disposition towards you is one of blessed, joyous vitality spilling over into others' lives because God's love is secure. It's always there. Our ultimate lover is never going away, no matter how much we fail and disappoint. Our obedience is never to earn God's love. Our obedience and the fear of the Lord and to walk in his ways is to stay in the journey of enjoying that blessed life. Fear of the Lord is allowing God to be as he is in all his awesome grandeur instead of constantly trying to whittle God down into our image, into the way that we want God to be, to fit what we think we can handle, and all the ways that we try to tame the mighty lion of Judah, Judah to be our domesticated lap cat, the way that we constantly try to whittle God down and put him in our pocket. 
so that we don't have to be afraid of him anymore. And therefore, we can live our lives however we want and justify our actions however much they may hurt other people or our planet and make our own way in the world rather than follow the well-laid and well-traveled roads that lead to blessing. That's what these pilgrims are singing about. Generational blessing, the kind of blessing that sees men and women, single and married, living lives filled up with overflowing joy for the peace and prosperity of our city, for the peace and prosperity of not just our children, but our children's children's children, whether they are biological children or not. It doesn't mean that there will not be difficulty or pain or suffering along the way. There are always going to be thorns and thistles to go along with enjoying the fruit of the labor of our hands. But the promise of Psalm 128 is that God's primary disposition towards us is one of blessing and the flourishing of our lives together to be all manner of wealth. Men and women, single married, Everyone. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.